curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. I want to say a big thank you to the Facebookers and the people that email with heads up for things, suggestions. Carol, thank you very much, Carol. You said, why aren't you something on poetry? Um, does get poo-pooed and people sniff at it and go, oh, it's all highfalutin stuff. But I think there's a fair love out there and I've found that there is a love out there. I've asked a bunch of luminaries to basically just read us a poem. Not one of theirs, one they love. And if they're really nice, um, we'll give them two. That happens tomorrow night. Bill Doreen is actually a poet, great writer, and a fabulous musician. Uh, go and check his work out. The Builders, B-I-L-D-E-R-S. And he reads a couple tomorrow night. And, ooh, it's pretty gritty stuff, actually. The F word is in there. But I'm not bleeping art. It's called Beldorization. I'll give you fair warning, and here's one of them. There will be a swear word in one of the poems tomorrow evening, but more criminal, I think, to change the meter and the content, anyway, of a work of art than being freaked out by the F word. All right, so there, there you go. There's one warning. Next up. We've got Bruce Hayward. He studies a weird little animal called the 4M and he's got a prize for it. All will be explained after the commercial break. It's actually flashing than what it sounds in the packet. Do check him out. Do try it. The universe and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The Royal Society, New Zealand's foremost scientific uh, aggregation of luminaries, or something along those lines, they divvy out important awards each year. The Rutherford Medal, we've heard from uh, earlier, Rod Downey, but one with a particular environmental um, import, I think, is the Hutton Medal, and the recipient is Bruce Hayward, very famous for a lot of research into volcanoes, but this is the study, actually, this is uh, the Hutton Medal, for um, a study into a strange little animal you may not have heard of, but can tell us a lot about a long time. First of all, a round of applause and congratulations, Bruce. Oh, thanks very much, Graham. It's a uh... Uh, very nice to, to be awarded and recognised, but uh, the award, of course, was for all my team, not just me. Very good. Um, now, just regards your scientific career, we'll get into a bit about these strange things called 4M Did anyone or anything inspire you towards an academic career? Uh, well, really, no. <laughs> um, I guess uh, I fell into it by mistake. I took the wrong course in my first year at university and became inspired by the lecturer in geology who was a uh, Ernie Searle. And that really got me interested in the outdoors and in natural history. And uh, I discovered I really loved the outdoors and I could, if I could do a career where I did a lot of field work. And when I was out there, I started seeing all sorts of things that uh, were asking questions and 
so I, I got into research to try and answer some of those questions that I was seeing out there in nature. Foraminifera, colloquially known in the scientific community, I understand it's just forams, that's handy. Uh, we'll work with forams uh, as, the, um, as the name. They can tell us a lot about a long time. Tell us what these things are. Well, in, in simple terms, uh, 4M is a microscopic shelled amoeba. So most people have heard of amoeba. They're single-celled organisms. But these ones are different in that they make shells. Uh, their average size is oh, about 0.4 of a millimetre, but we study them from 0.1 to about 0.5 of a millimetre in size. So we need a microscope to see them. Mm. And they all live in the sea. They don't live on land so that they're entirely marine, but they, they live in every habitat in the sea from the greatest depths right up to the extreme high tide in the grass and from the equator to even under the sea ice at the poles. When were they discovered even to exist, being rather small? Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to know exactly when they were first discovered. Um, the Egyptians way back uh, built the pyramids out of the shells of forams. Okay. So that the limestone that they were using there was made of the shells of some rather large 40-million-year-old tropical foraminifera. So way back then they were building the pyramids out of them, but they probably didn't know that they were what they were and how they lived. So it was probably more in the 18th century when uh, people had started getting microscopes and looking down at the sand and the, from the beach, etc. And then Linnaeus in that century was the first to start naming some of the larger foraminifera. Okay. Uh, so when you're spreading lime on your garden or dolomite, uh, when do we run into these things and don't Absolutely. know and the, 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 are the focus of your study? Well, you, you, when you say we're spreading lime on the, on the garden, yes, um, the, the lime that we use uh, is mainly the, four, the shells of foraminifera. They're the shells of ones that live in the plankton and the oceans. So they're in huge numbers, uh, these forams living in the, in the oceans, the plankton, and when they die, their shells fall to the, the bottom of the ocean and accumulate on, that, on the sea floor. And so, in fact, uh, approximately half of the surface of the Earth is blanketed by a mantle of foraminiferal shells with an average thickness of about 100 metres thick. Good God! And I've just done a quick calculation. In uh, British terms, that's a billion trillion shells are on the sea floor. That's uh, one, uh, t uh, 29 zeros on the end of a one. There's that many 4Ms mantling half the, the surface of the earth down there under the ocean. So when they get deeply buried, they turn into a li limestone and then that gets uplifted and we get the, the white cliffs of Dover or even up at Whangarei, the, the limestone that's uh, used to make New Zealand's only cement is mainly from the shells of foraminifera. So the lime you're spreading on the paddocks is probably coming the, from the shells of these plankton foraminifera that live in the ocean. Okay, why are they important uh, scientifically? Important. Okay, um, initially their study took off in the last century because they became very important for dating rocks. So the sequ their evolutionary sequence in marine sedimentary rocks was used for uh, dating those rocks and when they started looking for oil and drilling uh, they drilled down and the only material that would come back to the surface in the circulating mud was very small chips of, of rock from deep down and they found the, the shells of these forams in those little chips and they were able to use those to date the progress of the drilling and the search for oil so up until about 40 odd years ago they were mainly used for dating now in uh, these more environmentally aware times they're becoming more and more important 
for the study of the past environments and, and how humans have changed the environment. So the, the foraminifera can tell us what conditions were like in the past and how they've changed uh, naturally through time and more recently through human actions. So you have the information, the foram, the information they give you, is it the uh, number of them, the suite of species? There are thousands of species. How do you get your information? Either you've got a foram or you haven't. Oh, yes. Well, it's in a combination of those things, the, their relative abundance, but also in the species that are living there. So that, for example, there are uh, some species just live in very deep water, some live in shallow water, some live in high energy environments, some live where there's very low salinity, for example. So, for example, we did a study around New Zealand looking at uh, samples from sediment cores that had accumulated, the sediment had accumulated in estuaries around New Zealand. And we were looking to try and find the answer to the question, where have all the large shellfish gone that used to be there in pre-European times? Yeah. The, the pippi and the, the cockles and things. And uh, other people hadn't been able to come up with the, the, the answer, but we were able to show that the salinity in the estuaries all around New Zealand has changed with the cutting down of the forest and the building of the cities. Oh. So there's been a, a great decrease in the salinity in the estuaries, so they've become far uh, fresher, and this has driven the, the forams and the mollusks further out into the upper into, into the harbours, and so that's why these uh, shellfish aren't as big or aren't there anymore. And it's cited in your award blurb that you can actually tell of ancient earthquakes. I go, no, you can't. How does this happen? How do you? How can you tell? Oh, it's very easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, just like uh, the salinity can affect which ones live where, also the tidal elevation affects which ones live where. So we have uh, a zonation of the foraminifera in the intertidal, say, salt marsh sediments. So up at uh, extreme high tide, one species live. As we get further down, the species change and progressively down to low tide. So we get a whole zonation of, of species that are progressively changing and adapted to different uh, periods of time when they're exposed to the air, when the sea's not there. So if we study sediment samples going down a core we've put down in an estuary or a tidal lagoon, we suddenly see changes in the, the foramin foraminiferal fauna, which indicates that suddenly there's been a, a change in the elevation of the land with respect to the sea. So it may suddenly jump up about a metre, or it may suddenly jump down a metre and a half. Mm. And these sudden changes in elevation were caused by big earthquakes. So, for example, around Napier, we, we did a study there in Ahuriri Lagoon, which was one that was uplifted in the Napier earthquake in 1931, and the airport's on now. Yeah. Uh, we were able, able to show there that there'd been, prior to that, 10 major earthquakes in the last 7,000 years, and each one of those resulted in one to one and a half metres of subsidence, and only the Napier earthquake resulted in uplift. So, in fact, the, the normal earthquakes that they get there, the big ones, are going to... Um, down throw the city of Napier in that area rather than uplift it so there's an extra hazard there but yeah so we were and uh, now there's a huge uh, research project going on along the east coast of New Zealand trying to look at that history of uh, ruptures along the plate boundary the subduction interface and uh, a lot of the early work was our work uh, in the Ahuriri Lagoon that showed that there had been these major mega thrust earthquakes in New Zealand, and we haven't actually, haven't actually uh, had any in historic times yet. But uh, they will happen one day. They're, they're the biggest earthquakes that occur on Earth, uh, like the Chile earthquake, the Boxing Day earthquake, the, the big one off Japan mm. not so long ago. 
Uh, we haven't had any of those ruptures on the plate boundary along the east coast of New Zealand in historic times, but we do have them in the earth, in the geological record that our forearms have picked up. So the neat and handy thing about these creatures, forearms, is that there are so many of them and each of them likes a certain thing, or at least enough like certain things, that you can tell what it was like then. Well, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the biota don't have heart parts, they, they don't get fossilised, so they don't record any history of what the environment was like in the past. The forearms are one of the few things that have a hard parts but are so small that we find them in, in large numbers just in a small core. If you go for a, a pippy or a mus or, or a something bigger, sure, they have shells, they get preserved, but they're far more randomly distributed. And uh, if you put a core down, you, only, you may or may not get one or two of them. You're not getting a, uh, hundreds of them in every sample that you take up through uh, every sediment sample, which may represent five years of sediment accumulation. So the forearms have a continual record of environmental change, whereas the, the larger organisms, uh, it's far more patchy record. All right, climate change is a huge area of concern at the moment, and what can they tell you about that? Well, as I said, uh, the planktonic ones are in vast numbers out in the ocean, and so coring in the deep sea, coring the sediment that accumulated on the floor of the ocean, uh, has been going on by the International Drilling Project, which started 50 years ago now. And that drilling has brought back cores that go back... Uh, often continuous se se sequence going back 20, 30 million years, sometimes to 100 million years. And almost well, the majority of the record that they study, have studied there is in the foraminifera. And the different assemblages of planktonic foraminifera lived in different uh, water temperatures. So by studying those, they can see uh, the climate getting warmer and colder, warmer and cl colder through the ice ages, for example. They also, the 4M shells provide the material for uh, chemists to study the isotopes and they use the isotopes at the, in the calcite of the 4M shells to be able to also get a proxy for temperature change and salinity change back through time. So the work that's gone on in the deep sea in the last 50 million years not only uh, proved plate tectonic theory but also uh, allowed us to completely record and understand the history of the last ice ages. When I went to, through school, we just heard about four ice ages. I don't know whether you did. Now we know there was actually approximately 50 ice ages in the last 2.6 million years. And we know how severe they were. They were getting increasingly severe up to 600,000 years ago. And their spacing was getting a little bit longer in between. So initially they were 40,000 year cycles. Now they're 100,000 year cycles. And almost all of that record comes from the, the shells of the foraminifera that have been studied in these deep sea cores. Given the depth uh, of the the you know the hundreds of metres of forearms, basically, but stuck yeah. at the bottom of the ocean, uh, these shells are made of carbon Outside. and calcium yep. and hydrogen. Um, it's it's uh, an underappreciated carbon sink, isn't it? Oh, it is appreciated, yes. Uh, scientists all around the world know the oceans are a major sink and uh, some of it being captured in the carbonate in the shells of uh, both these and uh, some phytoplankton that produce calcareous shells is a major sink for taking carbon dioxide out of the, the atmosphere, yes. And so there's been a lot of studies on that. 
Okay, uh, you're also famous for your work on volcanoes. How does that intersect with this work? It doesn't. Oh. <laughs> it's just another of my interests, yes. Bloody um, hell! You're, a, you're I, a, one of those rare things, almost a Renaissance man. They've gone extinct. Uh, I thought. Uh, well, I do, I do study extinctions quite a bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, volcanoes, they're all around us here, so they pique my interest. And uh, so uh, a lot of my colleagues do a lot of detailed research on them, and I just pick up that information and try and uh, relay it in simple terms to the general population generally. And... But as I'm walking around, I also see questions that nobody's addressed, and I sort of say, hmm, I wonder why that is, or I wonder what was the, the uh, history of the eruption sequence there, or hang on, what's that? That looks like another volcano I've, nobody's rec recognised. That's the geologist's eye. As you travel around, you see the world a bit differently than we do. Uh, well, so I'm told, yes. Uh, I not only see it differently, but uh, unfortunately everywhere I go I see questions. So everything I look at, I think, mm, I wonder how, why that's there, how that's there, how it happened, when it happened. Mm, mm. Um, not only do I say, oh, I know that's a volcano, but I, I look at it and say, well, why is it still so high? Or, right. so, so if I look at the Coromandel Ranges, for example, we all know that's a, a line of old volcanoes, and we think, oh, that's why it's there. But then you drive from Pyro through to Waihi, through the Karangahaki Gorge, and you but how many people look at that and say, why is the river flowing right through the middle of the range? What, why is that, you know? And, and suddenly you sort of figure it out that, in fact, the whole range is being uplifted in the last three million years. Uh... And that river's course is, is uh, inherited from time when it was a lot lower, and that river managed to get through from the Waihi Basin through to the, the Hauraki, through between two of the volcanoes. But now it's gone up about three, 400 metres, and it's stuck there, flowing the wrong direction. <laughs> That's a beautiful example. Okay. Uh, is there any time in New Zealand uh, geological history you'd like to go back and see what was there to answer some question? Uh, well, it would remove the challenge for, from trying to do it by these uh, <laughs> clues and proxy evidence that we have around. Um, as a geologist, for example, one really has to use your imagination using the few clues you've got to try and piece together the history and then put up a hypothesis and then go and test that and look for more evidence and sometimes it changes, sometimes it strengthens that um, hypothesis. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite enjoying living right now actually in, in New Zealand. Um, I wouldn't have liked to have lived much of the time in the last couple of million years. It was for 90% of the time it's been a, a lot colder than it is today. Mm. That, and, and sea level's been a lot lower, so we didn't even have these lovely harbours and estuaries and the coastline that we've got now. There would have been different harbours. No, because it uh, there was a, would have been a wide coastal plain, rather like uh, the Canterbury Plain. So it would have been straight coastlines with gravel or sand beaches all the way along. Oh, bloody and, hell. Yeah, so it wouldn't have had all these lovely embayed, embayments and things uh, for 80, 90% of the time in the last two and a half million years. Oh, well, OK. And if we went back uh, 40, 50, 60 million years ago, well, we wouldn't have had volcanoes and earthquakes to worry about, but it'd been a boring place because we wouldn't have had mountains. Yeah. It was all flat, and in fact, there were a lot less land at that time. 30 million years ago, there's probably only 5% of the land we've got now. So I didn't want to go back till then either and go back more than 55 million years ago when we were started to split off Gondwana. <laughs> Before that, we'd have been a lot closer to Australia and be buggered if I want to be living then.
Sorry about that. That's all right. It's fascinating uh, what one can glean. And congratulations on uh, the Hutton Medal from the Royal Society and all your work as well. As might as well give it a plug. Out of the Ocean into the Fire, a book you published last year as well. Go get it. And thank you very much, Bruce Hayward. Okay. Thank you, Graham. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. I saw a swarm of bees the other day. Goodness me, it's quite a thing. They're social insects, along with wasps and ants and things like that. We have a social insect specialist on the line from Victoria University of Wellington, Phil Lester, to take us through the impact of social insects in New Zealand because, man, outside of bees, boy, they can be a real problem, if not at the least damned annoying. G'day, Phil. Hey, Graham. They do have an impact, don't they? I'm talking wasps and ants and things like that. They do. Uh, if you've got them, you know about it frequently. Yeah. Um, they have an impact largely because there are, are frequently just so many. There's lots and lots in a colony. Um, when colonies get big, you know that they're there. New Zealand, endemic social insects. It's kind of what this mm -hmm. piece is generally about. That is yep. New Zealand natural history. I can't think of any are they hiding and why aren't they swarming around what's the deal we do have some social insects but but not very many so we have no native social wasps and no native social bees we have solitary bees we have solitary wasps lots of solitary wasps lots of solitary bees but no social ones um, until people introduced them so the first ones were introduced honeybees were introduced in 1839 i think um in in northland We've got those, but, but in terms of native social insects, we're limited really to things like some ants. We've got a, about a dozen species of native ants, and we've got some termites, about three species of native termites. Do we see the native ants running around and don't know? They're pretty widely distributed in, in New Zealand, those 12 or so species. So they will be in your garden, they, they, they will be around, but uh, they just aren't really a problem for humans. They don't sting, they don't interact with people or, or, or crops that much. Why so few social insects? Why are our native bees just flatting by themselves? The yeah. others have learnt this trick. It's a, it's a little odd. New Zealand has a odd biodiversity to begin with, right? So we, we have no mammals other than, than a couple of bat species, right? So so we've we've evolved quite isolated and, and quite an odd fauna. We, we have lots of native insects. So we, we have lots and lots and lots of moth species, for example, but we have very few butterflies. And similarly, we, we have an awful lot of things like um, spiders. So we've got a huge diversity of spiders here in New Zealand, but we have very few butterflies flies for example we've got a odd a very odd fauna um, and it's just bec largely because of our isolation and, and how we've evolved over here if we look at our neighbors somewhere like Australia they have about 3,000 to 6,000 species of, of ants so they don't quite know how many they've really got whereas we have a, a dozen native species it's really odd but it's it's a matter of our isolation right although uh, a of a westerly a one in a million year westerly you'd think they'd get over here wouldn't you and some things disperse better than others. You know, that, that's part of the, the spider dispersal. They have little silk webs and that sort of thing and can get over here pretty easily. So a lot of flying insects have been able to do that. You know, monarch butterflies came to New Zealand by themselves from yeah. Australia, swept over the ditch. You know, lots of things can, can get over here 
by themselves on the wind. Uh, other things have much more of difficulty. So wasps uh, and you know, social wasps and social bees just haven't been able to do it. Okay. Are our solitary bees descended from a social type or did they just miss out on this genetic trick and are a more ancient form? So there, there are many, many, many different types of bees around the world. The vast majority probably are solitary individuals, right? Oh, so they're, they're sort of solitary in terms of they will build little nests almost, but individual larvae within those nests are provisioned by themselves and there's no sharing of, of work between workers and, you know, all those sorts of things. So most bees probably are solitary. There's, there's just a few groups really, you know, when it comes down to it, an end of that phylogeny as it were, that, that is social, that do work together. There seems to be some sort of pattern with social insects. Just to get into some of the evolution of it, when did this trick come about? Because ants have done it, termites have done it, wasps and bees have done it? Yeah, I, I don't have the exact date in my head, but, but um, hundreds <laughs> of millions of years ago, I think, is, is when you know we start seeing those sorts of things evolve. Wow. They've been around for an awful long time. <laughs> it's a hell of a trick. It makes mm. me scratch my head how it could have evolved. I'm not saying intelligent design or anything. That's right. It's, it's, but it, when you look at the complexity of how these communities are organised, it's spectacular. Mm. Yeah, because of odd, odd breeding system that, that a lot of them have, we think. The, the common theory is that it's an odd breeding system that's meant that, that sisters within a hive are highly related. So they're on average share three quarters of their genes with their sisters. All right. So if, if you're sharing lots of your genes and, and you're highly related to each other, then it, it can be beneficial for you to help each other and rear your offspring. Uh -huh. So, so that, that just odd breeding system that, that a lot of uh, insects, a lot of social bees and a lot of social wasps have, mean highly related, mean it's benefi beneficial for them to work together and help each other out. Must have been... Um well, I could imagine then how it might snowball if it's a bit beneficial. Uh, you find it doing more and you breed more of those and they do, yeah. do more yep. and it's you've got, yep. oh, hell, we've got a, an ant's nest. Yep, yep, yep. You've got a, a highly efficient organisation that works together and, and for the good of the, their gene pool and the good of the queen, effectively. Yeah, OK. It's amazing how the queen must have evolved, though, because they have a mm. different genetic makeup. Well, they do and they don't. So, so you know, within honeybees, um, the queen can, queen is just you know very similar to a worker, but how she develops all depends on on what she's fed. Right. So she gets a nice, nice, rich protein-rich food, basically royal jelly when she's developing, and she'll develop into a queen, and away she goes. All right, this kind of is a spring subject. Why I wanted to bring it up now because people will be observing in their backyards or in the countryside all sorts of social insect activity. Ants mm -hmm. are on the move. Yep. Uh, as I said, I saw a swarm of bees. Mm -hmm. Bloody paper wasps are everywhere. They're all <laughs> doing stuff. What's going on at this time of year? Well, it's spring, so things are, things, things are really kicking off. So um, uh, there, there is um, some bee swarming that starts about this time of year uh, where... Uh, bees have an uh, unusual form of reproduction where the, the colony, the hive, will split into two, basically. So half the workers will, will go off with the old queen and half the workers will stay with a new queen that's produced in, in that hive. So so they've got an odd sort of system of, of, of colonies. Um, for ant populations, for a lot of the, the native ants, um, they will have mating flights that are, that are starting soon. Um, in 
uh, Europe, um, Britain, places like this, they, they have a, a May Day, the Ant Day, they call it, where it seems on one day you'll get a, a big, massive nuptial flight of, of swarming ants. The mm. moon is just right and all those, and away they go. We don't see that over here in New Zealand so much. But about now and, and for a little bit more, you know, things are starting to happen. They're, they're emerging from from their spring and winter and they're starting to reproduce and they're starting to kick into gear. Okay, I see an ant's, what must have been near an ant's nest, seemingly yeah. the fire alarm's gone on and everyone's evacuating outside and, right. and uh, amassing, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of them with wings. What's yep. going on there? So uh, underground, the, the queens, the new queens and the new nuptials, you know, males and queens have, have been produced and um, they are being encouraged to go outside and go go on mating flights. Um, so those will leave the nest, they'll fly up into the air, typically mate on the wing. Um, the new queens will land back down on the ground, take their wings off, so they'll chew their wings off effectively, and start a, a, attempt to start a colony. And every one yeah. of those uh, fertile, um, fertilised females is a potential ant's nest. Yep, that, that, that's correct. So, so that that frequently happens. The survival of those is typically very low. So, the chance of of one of those queens actually managing to establish a new colony and a new nest herself is is really, typically really really low. So, a small percentage, you know, even a fraction of one percent of those will, will often survive. It's a hard life out there, and there'll be other ants that attack them. There'll be predators that try and eat them. There'll be birds, you you name it, wasps, all sorts of things will try and attack and eat, eat those new queens that are being produced. Right, that's why we're not knee-deep in ants. That's right. Yep, I don't yep. see many things eating ants. They've got that formic acid that makes them go, ick. Yeah, yeah and, and that's that's correct for a lot of the workers. So a lot of the workers are, are very much like that. But for those new queens that are being produced, those new new queens are high in fat, very poorly protected. protected. You know, they've, they've got well-provisioned, well-resourced poorly defended, very tasty for a lot of spiders or birds or whatever. Really? So a grey warbler would see a female, a, a potential queen ant, and go, yum? Yeah, yeah they, they, they do. So, so predators very quickly learn to recognise, OK, these are tasty, ah. and, but, but we don't, don't attack the, the workers. Oh, man, I thought they might have got away with a free pass because the rest of them tasted egg. No, Far no not. <laughs> All right, now the impact on our biodiversity, which is really the thrust of the matter, what impact do these social insects, the exotic ones, have? So, so the biggest impacts we probably have uh, are with social wasps, and those are the ones we really know. So the vespular ones, the yellow jackets, some people sometimes call, call yeah. them. And, and those we, we uh, see in, in our native beach forests in the South Island, places like Honeydew Beach Forest, massive densities down there. And, and we've seen uh, up to 40 nests per hectare, you know, masses and masses and masses of wasps. And each of those nests in that hectare might have five to 10,000 workers in them. Right. So huge abundance of these. And um, in those situations, you can often observe very poor or slim chance of spiders surviving, of moths surviving. You know, you introduce a moth or a spider in, in you know, autumn in those circumstances and it's very quickly found by wasps and, and attacked and eaten. And the larva, of course, as yep. well. And the eggs. Yeah. Yeah, anything. They're very, very efficient hunters, especially when they're in such high densities. So they've got such a large worker force out, the chances of our native biodiversity not being attacked is pretty slim.
what is the politics behind the walls of uh, Wasp's Nest? Uh, is one queen? 1500? Yeah. What's the deal? In uh, most colonies in New Zealand, you, you have one queen who, who's doing all the reproduction. You can sometimes get these really large sort of perennial nests, nests that, that live for many years effectively, you know, and those can have multiple queens in them, and, and those queens are, are doing reproduction. We're not quite sure what, what happens or what's going on in those. Um, but that's typically only in really warm parts uh, of New Zealand, uh, oh. further north, down here in Wellington. We don't see so many of those. But, but um, you know, occasionally you get those massive, massive nests that, that might have hundreds of thousands of workers in them. Really. Yeah, uh, there's the famous picture of something about the size of a VW being helicoptered out of a tree yeah. in the Waitakere's. Yep. Yep, yep, that, that was good. And the, and the guy dangling under a helicopter treating it, you know, in a wetsuit. That, that awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right, there was this magical juice called fipronol that we weren't allowed to use for some sort of industrial relations reasons for a while. It's out mm -hmm. of the bag now. Uh, is this a saviour? Are we making headway with this poison that we can use? So fipronol is a broad-spectrum insecticide. Um, so it affects many different insects if it's not delivered properly and carefully. Yeah. What's been developed in, in New Zealand is a, a product called Vespex, um, and, and Richard Toft did that in Nelson with Intercol, a company down there. The breakthrough with Vespex is that it's a bait that's very, very attractive to wasps, but not at all attractive to other insects like honeybees. So honeybees won't go anywhere near it, but you know wasps will come from miles around to, to take it and, and take it back to their nest. The bait matrix is really the breakthrough product there in terms of it's a way of targeting wasps quite specifically and, and, and directly. And the low concentrations of fipronil that are in that bait mean that it doesn't kill the wasp immediately. They take it back to their nest, feed it to everybody, and, and the nest dies that way. And we're making headway? So it's a world-leading product, really, in terms of uh, our ability to control wasps now. And lots of beekeepers are using it. You know, a lot. It's being used by conservation authorities on a, a big scale. You know, this this product can be used over thousands of hectares. It's very good. I actually went down to the local church and rang the bells when it was released. So, <laughs> <laughs> because they they compete with our birds as well, don't they? They really do. You know, and it's very noticeable in the in the honeydew beech forest where. The birds rely on that honeydew often from it's produced by scale insects and in the absence of it they are clearly hungry and, and people in that region will tell you that you know the birds rely on feeders at times around the townships to, mm. to give them this sort of sweet nectary sugar water sort of solution. Once the Vespex is introduced and wasps are controlled, the birds don't need that anymore. So mm. it's, it's amazing just how, you know, how much they, they do eat. And of course insects um, a major a uh, source of sustenance for our native birds as well, and they just mm. th there is competition there. Yep. All right. It seems as though we've always had wasps, but it's surprising to find how recently some of them have come in, isn't it? Mm. It's amazing how biodiversity changes and people just accept that. The German wasps came in and, and uh, after the Second World War, so about 1945-46, they, they were first discovered in Hamilton and spread from there. Um, the common wasps, they had came in somewhere in the 1970s. They look like German wasps, but are hard to, to sort of differentiate unless you know what you're doing. 1970s? God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so the, they've sort of spread from there and, and displaced German wasps from large areas of beach forest, for example. But both are now well and truly distributed throughout New Zealand. OK, uh, this is personal. I, I'm waging a war against the paper wasps. To me, <laughs> right. they, they, they look like Stukas 
dive, yeah, dive yeah, bombing yeah. or strafing a, a Polish village of, yeah. of innocent Admiral butterflies with their yep. landing gear down. When did they get here and how are they organised? Because they have a what looks like um, a different outfit going on. Yeah, so, so the paper wasps are different. So, so they have uh, typically smaller nests. So the, the ones you are probably familiar with, the Asian paper wasp and, and the Australian paper wasp, have been here for a couple of decades. So a relatively recent introduction. Um, they have smaller nests, you know, uh, get up to the size of about an apple sort of thing. And lots of workers and, and things from underneath there. Unfortunately, life is going to get much worse for you and for an awful lot of people with, with paper wasp. There's a new species of paper wasp that's come into the country oh, in, in, in Nelson and is well established now, the European paper wasp it's called. They build much larger nests and are much more abundant and um, start off earlier in the year. So those are well and truly underway now, building nests and, and big populations. They will spread throughout New Zealand and, and they will be even worse a problem, much worse a problem than, than um, the, the two species that we already have. And we can't knock them down with fipronol because they only eat live things, right? Yeah, they're much harder to, to deal to, and people all over the world have been trying to develop products to control these, uh, you know, and, including um, you know the European paper wasp with a focus on those uh, in lots of different countries, and have yet been really unsuccessful. The, the only way at the moment to control them is direct contact with pesticides or a can of fly spray or something like that and, and coat the nest. It's, it's not positive. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is their nest, is it one queen per nest there? Yeah, typically one queen per nest for, for a lot of those. With paper wasps, it's a little different in terms of, well, if that queen dies or, you know, whatever happens, then other workers from within that nest can become reproductively active so they can take over the queen role. Oh, it's worse than the Cybermen. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Here's a point regarding conservation. Wasps are not included in the Predator-Free 2050 mission statement, are they? And yet, They're goodness not. me, they can clean up as much as a rat. I personally would, would like to see them uh, include, included in that list. Uh, but I understand also that, you know, they've got major challenges and limited amounts of money and, and those sorts of things. But in terms of invertebrates, I think, you know, social wasps, the yellow jackets, the common wasps and German wasps are a huge, huge problem and, and are deserving to be on that sort of list too. So it would be great to have them have them there. And I actually think it, it might be easier to, to eradicate some of those from New Zealand, the, the wasps, than... Uh, other things like ferrets or stoats, weasels, you know, those sort of, that We know a lot more about wasps and, and potentially how to kill them than we do ferrets or stoats. You know, th those sorts of animals, we don't have the embryology, we don't have the reproductive biology sorted out in the same way that we do for wasp populations. You know, th there's some major, major challenges ahead of us to, to knock down, uh, you know, rats and possums and stoats. And we, mm. you know, those, but whereas wasps, we, we know a bit more and would be able to do a bit better, and there's still a massive problem. But you have to get to the HQ. It's no good killing a soldier because more come over the hill, don't you? Exactly. Don't they? So they've got this well organised. It, it feels kind of good killing the odd worker, squashing her against the window and that sort of thing, but it's not going to do much for wasp control. What about all hands on deck? Add on the line or on tally, here's one of these European paper wasp nests. If you see one, get rid of it or call us. 
you'd be absolutely swamped in Nelson at the moment. There are many, many nests per property. So, you know, a house might have 10 nests around the eaves oh, of it and, and a, more in the in the garden and the hedge and all, you know, so huge abundance of, of nests and, and it would be great to, to have people, you know, controlling those and our biodiversity would benefit. You know, the last year in Wellington, we had a, a poor wasp season, so very few wasps. And the, the number of monarch butterflies, the number of admiral butterflies, you know, that, that I saw were just just amazing, order of magnitude mm. higher than when we have when we have no wasps. They do really do nail our biodiversity. Yeah, and those um, admiral butterflies are a nice indicator that things are going okay. But it's because we see them and we like them. But mm. uh, the impact that they must be doing on a, a bunch of other insects that yeah, may yep. be vital but aren't as sexy, um, yep. it's it's kind of like a good barometer. You can assume yeah. that things are going better as well for them. An indicator species. Yeah. Okay, here's a question I've been dying to ask someone like yourself. Let's say an ant's nest is destroyed. Mm-hmm. There are workers out there, you know, maybe ages away, walking home. They come home, right. they see, uh-oh, I haven't got a nest anymore. What do they do? Do they retire, go to the beach, wander it, around, not knowing quite what to do? <laughs> it, it depends a bit on which species you're, you're talking about. So people like to destroy Argentine ant nests, for example. So Argentine ants are a, a massive problem, especially the further north you go, Auckland and, and places like that, lots of Argentine ant nests. If you destroy an Argentine ant nest and don't kill all the workers, those workers will just then merge with some other nest. So they're what, what we call unicolonial. They don't mind who their queen is. They, they will just travel around and find a new nest if you destroy part of one nest or if you attempt to. Mercenaries. Yeah, yeah. So, so they just go around, and 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 there's lots of theories for that. But but some of the theories are, are that well, they're so genetically related, they don't mind who they help because they're helping themselves really when it when it comes down to it. So they're all very similar. So it doesn't really matter if I help this nest over here because they share all my genes anyway. So I'll do that. But what about the others that don't do that? So if you get something like a wasp nest, if you destroy a, a wasp nest and, and you'll only, you know, you won't get everything in there cause, because some of the workers will be out foraging yep. or they'll fly off and that sort of thing, they will attempt to rebuild at least part of that nest and, and carry on from there. So a wasp, a worker wasp, you look at it and think she's she's not reproductive, but, but she is actually capable of laying eggs, but only uh, eggs that will develop into males. So they will rebuild their nest and, and they might, if they can't find a queen or have no queen, they'll lay some eggs themselves and, and those eggs will hatch into males and fly off and, and mate, hopefully. Good heavens. But a worker ant and a normal working ant uh, in, environment, it can't lay eggs, can it? And what does it do if its, it's um, nest is destroyed? Yeah, some worker ants can lay eggs, oh, um, but, <laughs> but, but most don't. But they will try and rebuild the nest and, and try and, and re-repair any damage, but, but that nest will eventually die up because there's just no right. no new ones being produced. Sit around, look at, look at its work and go, oh, well. Yeah, you know, they'll still do the ant thing and, and likely rear through those work, you know, eggs and into larvae and, and into pupae and into adults and those sorts of things. But, but uh, yeah, the future is, is doomed if you kill all the queens. All right. You've upset my evening with this European <laughs> paper wasp thing. That sounds dreadful. Come on, yeah. people, let's have a go at least. MPI have, have, have decided that it's really established and it's a way. Um, and I think that's probably an accurate assessment. It was a few years uh, until after it was really established here that was introduced and established that they cottoned on, hey, this is a new one. The European paper wasp looks 
exactly like the Asian paper wasp, but, but um, you know, again, unless you know the differences, you won't tell. Oh. Um, so it was a while till it was seen, and by that, by that stage, it, it's just everywhere. It's, it's away. Okay. Have you got a favourite fun fact from the world of social insects? Oh, there's many fun facts from the social insects world. Tell me, where, where do you think the most painful place is to be stung by a honeybee? On your body. Oh, the most painful place. Oh, lip. So not the, the lower abdominal region? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, take, take a good beating. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're pretty close, actually. The, the most, apparently the most painful place to be stung is in the nostril. Uh, people have done these experiments in, in Europe where you've stung everywhere, including on the penis. Right. Uh, yeah, the most painful place for him was inside the nostril, which which is just amazing. So, oh, yeah. yeah, it's like when you get one of those uh, nascent pimples uh, happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's your fun fact. Um, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, Phil Lester, expert on social insects from Victoria University of Wellington. All the best. And, Thanks, Graham. Oh, dear. Bloody paper yeah. wasps. Okay. <laughs> All right. See ya. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Bastard wasps. I hate them. I've been riding on my bike around the block and around another block and around another block trying to find paper wasp nests and I can't find one. Anyway, tomorrow night, Jesus Make It Stop, part five as Glenn Harper takes us through the grim last few weeks of World War I. Uh, Ludendorff was becoming more and more erratic and his moods would, would seriously uh, swing between being uh, optimistic that they could continue to um, actually moods of serious depression and actually collapsing on the carpet and foaming at, at the mouth. Um, so he was becoming more and more erratic and irrational and I think in some ways the war had, uh, had seriously unbalanced him. Um, as an example of that, he's had two stepsons and they were both killed during the war and um, the stepson that was killed in August 1918, Hindenburg actually had his body retrieved from the battlefield and brought back to his headquarters where it was placed in a refrigerator and each night he would go and talk to it, he'd pull it out and talk to it, um, which I think indicates that he's slightly unbalanced but also I think it indicates certainly the loneliness and isolation of command. Oh dear, that, Jesus, make it stop tomorrow night 9.30. It's news time. Oh, yes, and after that, uh, we will be re-spinning the Cars debut album called The Cars. Uh, it's turning 40 with... Uh, Grant Smithies will be re-spinning it, along with myself. I'll, I'll chip in an opinion here and there, shall we say? <laughs> Actually, we have not a bad argument. <laughs>